0: Hello, thank you for joining another episode of our podcast hosted by Global Stake, your leading bare metal staking service provider. We are excited because on today's episode, we have Marcus Thielen, who is an incredible author who's written an amazing book that I can't wait for us to get into The Crypto Titans. Um, But Marcus is head of research and strategy at Matrixport, which is based in Singapore. And earlier this year, he came out with this book, Crypto Titans. How Trillions Were Made and Billions Lost in the Cryptocurrency Markets. And this, I swear, is the best cryptocurrency book, I kid you not, that I have read. And I'm constantly telling other people to pick it up and read it. Um, Because, Marcus, I'm just going to brag on you for a second. He is one of the few authors that I've read on the subject that is super neutral about the whole situation, the history of cryptocurrency. You don't have to worry about going into the book thinking that he is going to go down a tangent to steer you towards one way or the other. It is just, this is the facts. This is what happened. Take it or leave it. Um, But here's some other quotes that people have said. Um, Let's see. Required reading for those looking to engage in the digital asset space, a truly amazing early history of a new era in finance, excellent macro and historical analysis of the crypto industry, et cetera, et cetera. You guys are getting the point, but excited to have you on Marcus. Ryan, we're excited, obviously, co-host him. So, Marcus, welcome. We really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Thanks, uh, Ryan and Jordan, for having me. Of course, of course. So, as always, we start with the very first question. Just curious for you to tell us about your background, like your story. um, What eventually led you into cryptocurrency?
1: Yeah, thanks very much. I mean, I've been uh, in Asia for the last kind of like 15, 16, 17 years, uh, worked for large uh, banks initially in proprietary trading, moved to a large hedge fund called Millennium Capital Partners, you know, one of the largest hedge funds out there. Uh, afterwards, I launched my own hedge fund more in the macro space and so was always focused on kind of market cycles, liquidity and, you know, a very trading focused uh, background. And uh, afterwards, I moved uh, to a crypto firm where I was a chief investment officer overseeing seven different uh, crypto funds. Uh, we did everything from you know arbitrage to you know long short strategies, um, and then basically I came to Matrixport, which is a, a four billion dollar uh, crypto investment platform. You know it's started by a gentleman called Jihan Wu, who's one of the the largest Bitcoin mining machine uh, manufacturers. We have a market share of eighty percent at Bitmain. It's a history so very well established in in Asia. Um, And yeah, and I write research uh, quite frequently, published on LinkedIn or Twitter and, you know, very active really in, uh, you know, pumping out some fact based research.
0: So then out of curiosity, most traditional finance hedge fund people that we talk to um, take a long time to finally like even experiment with crypto, let alone like invest in it. So what was the catalyst for you that early on you thought, hey, I'm leaving traditional finance and kind of exploring this?
1: Yeah, I think there are a few components, right? One, I wanted to do something a little bit more more tech focused. Um, but also I was managing a portfolio and I had a at a ten percent allocation on an institutional portfolio where I have a ten percent allocation in crypto. So it was it was suddenly like part of it and it became bigger and it was just like a little bit more exciting and and my approach is a little bit less on the on the you know tech heavy side, rather more on really the liquidity side. Uh, it, you know, of course, I've done really well this year with with the macro calls and everything. And I think actually uh, this was like a little bit the analysis I really you know went through that the Bitcoin is very often driven by these these kind of like macro cycles more than than anything else. Right? Of course, we we attaching a little story around it, right? We DeFi summer. But at the end of the day, DeFi somewhere is sort of like, you know, like like a child coming out of zero interest rate for ten years, and suddenly, you know, it it suddenly worked, right? And then people attaching narratives around it. But I think you can make an argument that it's very often um, a policy decision that opens the door, and suddenly it explodes, uh, explodes. And and I remember, like in I think it was in January two thousand thirteen. Uh, the guy next to me at, you know, where I worked, uh, he bought Bitcoin on Mt. Gox. It took like a week to get the confirmation. And is like a horrible process. And in 2015, we tried to set up some exchange, uh, cross exchange arbitrage system, but it didn't really work. And, you know, it was like cumbersome because, you know, USDT wasn't really, you know, that, that used. So you needed to have some capital there and on and another exchange. So, it's, so it all kind of like the market wasn't really there. But I think the long story is this. Once the market cap was more than a trillion dollars, the the large institutions couldn't couldn't really ignore Bitcoin anymore. And this is really the difference why we're we having all these institutions now in the market, because they look at it, you know, if it's like a $50 billion market, I mean, who kind of cares, right? It's like nothing compared to, you know, the large uh, financial markets out there. But a trillion dollars, I mean, we should better have some analysts looking at this stuff. And I think that's what all the banks, you know, the blackrock of the world are saying to themselves. And I think this is why the institutions are not leaving And have not left during the you know the crypto winter that we had like last year.
0: Makes perfect sense. Then to transition here, um, here curious. So then, what led you to write the book? You know, just with your with your background and all the balls you've been juggling, and and the, the titles and the roles. What made you want to sit down and write an actual like thesis?
1: Yeah, the the idea was really to, to understand how everything in crypto is really connected and how everything really interchangeably works, right? I mean, we talk about, um, you know, uh, stable coins all day long, basically, but stable coins are only used basically since early 2020. I mean, this is only really like three years ago uh, that people really started heavily using them, right? And what was the trigger? What was the, the main event that it became so popular? Of course... You look at, for example, Tether's market cap. I mean, 2018, yes, it existed, but it wasn't really anything meaningful, right? So, But what was the event that suddenly people started to use it? You know, what was the event that Binance became so big, right? Or, you know, of course, we know about some of the hacks that that brought Mt. Gox down, but how does it all kind of really, like, fit together? And I think the most surprising uh, factor is really that some of these characters that have started Certain crypto projects, I mean they have started you know many other projects as well, right, and for example, how one you know kind of like a, a Chinese exchange student you can call him uh, started an exchange in Singapore, and out of this exchange over like a few iterations, you suddenly I, w- I would argue you know tether came out of it right, and of course Tether has like many fathers as as any success story has, but but it 's kind of interesting how everything actually is connected in crypto. And I would argue also that maybe like 100 people really control the whole market. I mean, of course, we all want to be involved, but, uh, but I think the market is very concentrated and it's quite uh, interesting how this all works. And that's what I was trying to figure out with this book. And it was just like one door led me to another. And it just, uh, you know, it just it didn't stop because it didn't stop because crypto doesn't stop. Right. You cannot uncover like so many things. And I think that's quite interesting.
2: I haven't had the chance to read the book yet, Marcus, but one of the things that you were just commenting on is just this concentration of, say, 100 people who do c- control the markets. Do you feel that this control is going to be further you know, distributed as we move into the future? Like a lot of dynamics are shifting right now. We're now in a, a very high interest rate environment, for instance, And Bitcoin throughout its entire history has lived in this very low interest rate environment. Do you think some of these macroeconomic factors and just, you know, greater regulatory clarity and other things that are coming, you know, are going to change that dynamic of a hundred people and it'll be more distributed in terms of the power? I mean, maybe if the market becomes bigger, I don't think it has to
1: do with really interest rates. It's more really that, you know, when you look at, when you simply look at how many Bitcoins have been mined over time, right? And I think by twenty by 2012 or 2013, like 50% of all the Bitcoins have been mined already. So, of course, the people who mined it and if they were still holding onto them, of course, they control the whole market, right? And you can also argue that right now, bitcoin Bitcoin's dominance is 53%. So despite these 20 or 30,000 other coins and tokens that are out there, they're still not challenging, you know, the main token, right? And you can even like argue that, you know, Ethereum has a really great story going for itself, but Ethereum's, uh, you know, revenues are so low this year, right? Nobody's using any DeFi, nobody's using any NFT minting. So uh, Ethereum is not there where I think a lot of people projected it to be looking back like a year or two, right? So it's all Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin, we can make an argument for more like a macro story. Um, You know, is it kind of like an inflation hedge or is it a, alternative store value or is it, is it like some safety pocket in the times of war or is it a, another way to, you know, store your money because they have all these fiscal deficits and this endless spending. Right. So, um, but nevertheless, I think uh, there are all these like interesting stories around it and uh, each bull market had a different narrative. And I think uh, when you look how some of the people have really kind of sort of cornered the market, they were early and then they were really big. Right. I mean, um you know, I mean, they're like different characters, uh, but of course, nobody came out of nowhere really, right? Usually people had some money already, so they could buy, you know, ten, twenty thousand 20,000 Bitcoins, you know, early on.
0: And of course, that's a huge amount of money now. So let's uh, let's transition into the actual, like, structure of the book. So for those of you that are listening that haven't read the book yet, essentially what Marcus breaks down is the four crypto bull markets. So he talks about 11, 13, 17, and 21, then after the 21, talks about the bear of 2022, and then ends the book um, with an explosive fashion of FTX. So to kind of just like prime us, for the average person that's maybe listening to this or watching this, that's a traditional um, um, asset manager or hedge fund in the the TradFi space and is looking into crypto, can you give us kind of the highlights of each one? So you mentioned there's typically a cast of characters through each bull market um, kind of gives like a high level overview of the history.
1: Yeah. The idea was really to provide uh, a kind of like a, a weekend narrative um, to understand really how the industry started, evolved. Um, what was kind of like the main themes of these different uh, bull markets? Of course, people kind of know bull, You know, Bitcoin came from sort of like zero to suddenly like, you know, above 30,000 again. And the peak it was, you know, a bit more about 60,000. But people don't really know really what were the drivers, right? Of course, people have, have heard of like, you know, bits and pieces here and there on, you know, Mount cox of course, and some other things and BitMEX maybe. Um, but of course, how does this all kind of is A, connected? And what is really the motivation that people suddenly kind of come to the market? And, and what I initially set out was really to understand these, Four crypto bull markets, and one was 2011, which was driven by Bitcoin as a new payments mechanism. Uh, 2013, which was driven, you know, on the one side by the European debt crisis, you know, the bail-in of Cyprus, uh, you know, the depositors, but also at the same time, and this is when the bull market really gained traction uh, in China. So the Chinese discovered Bitcoin. Uh, state, the state TV, 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 uh, had a documentary, 25 minutes saying this is a new form of money. It helps to evade taxes. They really said this, you know, and of course in China, uh, you cannot just send the money out outside of China, right? You have limited investment restrictions. Bitcoin really went, uh, up 5,000% in 2013. It was mainly driven by the Chinese. And by the end of 2013, 90%, nine zero of all the Bitcoin trading was happening in China. Uh, you just have to like really imagine this, right? So the the amount of, you know, the Bitcoin software, kind of 2013 in the U.S. was uh, the, downloaded, it doubled in China and went uh, up like 7X. So it's just like a massive ramp up. And this combined also that in China, they discovered how to mine the Bitcoin a lot more efficiently and a lot more powerful. So suddenly all the Bitcoins that were mined, they were mined in China because they suddenly had the most powerful machines. They set these machines at the kind of one to three months uh, investment recuperation rate. So, you know, you invest $1,000 now and in three months you have your money back. But, of course, the Bitcoin price rallied so massively that some people made the money back in three days, right? So you can just, like, imagine the fortune that were made, you know, before you had some, you know, some some smart tech guys in New Jersey, you know, plugging two computers together. And the Chinese looked at this like, hey, if it works with two, why don't we have like 10,000 computers, right? And they built these huge mining farms, you know, cheap electricity. And it's very interesting how this whole um, industry really evolved, right? And then, you know, fast forward, the 2017 was, of course, the ICO bull market, how to raise capital more efficiently. You know, people put huge amount of money in there. And, of course, a lot of people – Um, remember this, but they don't remember the amount of money that was raised. I mean, really like billions after billions after billions. And uh, most of these ICOs went underwater within like four months after the ICO. Uh, So I think 70% lost money very quickly. A lot of people sold out. A lot of people kind of, you know, disappeared with a lot of the money there. Um, And then, of course, then the last bull market was the 2021 bull market. And it was driven, of course, uh, two phases here. And this is interesting because the one was driven by, the yield farming craze, which was kind of the, you know, kind of came out of the, the low interest rates environment. But also we had of course the NFT craze, right? So 2000, uh, 2021 or 21, we had the um, the peak first in April based on DeFi summer, but then the whole DeFi protocol coins started to lose value. So they went lower and lower. Uh, while well, Bitcoin made a new high then in kind of September, October period. this was, of course, uh, coinciding with the NFT craze. And, of course, there are some interesting stories around there uh, as well. I think that's kind of like, uh, you know, in a nutshell, those four bull markets.
2: I just got to jump in and say this, that the 2013 aspect especially was – really revealing to me i did not know any of that history about china i'm so looking forward to reading your book i'm glad i got the kindle edition because i can start today (laughs) but the one of my students one of the smartest students when i was still teaching in in school he actually was sent as part of the state department in the u.s to china in 2012 and 2013 and he came back that spring and the first thing he said have you ever heard of bitcoin and i said no what's that he said everybody in china is talking about it's a new form of money on the internet so i look it up i see everything about silk road all these crazy bad stories. And I'm like, I don't want to touch this thing. And I could see the volatility and the price whipping all over the place, but I had no idea that there was this big sort of populist push in China. So that was really interesting. Thank you for sharing the story. I'm really looking forward to the book now.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's also an interesting story because that was the time also of over-invoicing exports from China into Hong Kong, right? So Hong Kong was reporting something like they they imported 200 billion U.S. dollars worth of goods from, from China, but China was claiming they sent 280 billion dollars. So where is these 80 billion kind of disappearing between the border suddenly, right? And of course, some probably went into Bitcoin. You know, with Bitcoin, you can mine it in China. So of course, you buy the machines with the Chinese currency. You buy electricity with the Chinese currency. But then you can sell the Bitcoin for U.S. dollars overseas, right? And I think that's kind of like how this whole thing, you know, exploded. Stablecoin started to trade at a premium. You know, what a lot of people also don't know right now that, uh, yes, the market cap of Tether is around like 83, 84 billion U.S. dollars. And, of course, the Tethers started to be issued on Ethereum. But now the largest chain really is actually on Tron. Right, Tron has overtaken the issuance uh, of uh, of of tethers. Sorry, uh, yeah, of tethers on um, on Ethereum. So, and of course, Tron is more Chinese focused and Chinese linked. And you can understand maybe there is something going on that we, you know, should investigate further, right? But I think that's kind of like the interesting aspect how it's all kind of because in the end, it's like a it's like a global currency, I would argue, right, or a global commodity. And and one thing. That that I particularly found interesting is, you know, I was in Hong Kong, you know, for the last you know decade or two, so crypto was around there, you know, very early on. But but what I didn't really hear was these you know these these big siren calls from from the central bank or from the regulator, and that had such a profound impact, right? I mean, of course, we look every day. Let's say we're looking at the stock market and we're hearing all this noise, but we don't see the bigger picture, right? The bigger picture is. If the central bank suddenly changes interest rate policy and in Hong Kong in 2014, basically, um, you know, China was starting then to say this is all crazy. They were outlawing Bitcoin more or less or crypto. Uh, the PBOC, the, the China central bank, basically told uh, banks not to engage with crypto firms uh, anymore. So they did a different CCTV documentary saying, oh, crypto is all bad suddenly. You know, so that is like within a year that has changed completely and it's quite interesting. But then 2014, uh, the Hong Kong Central Bank, the HKMA, suddenly came out. Well, for us, to us, Bitcoin is a commodity. So basically, if you have a vending machine and you're selling Snickers, well, it's a commodity. You don't need any any money transmitter licenses or something. And of course, that's when the whole industry moved from China to Hong Kong, and right? it just literally exploded because the regulator said, "Well, it's a commodity, so guys have fun with it, right?" And these Bitcoin ATMs—you know—you had like shops where basically you could walk in, literally with plastic bags full of money, and convert the and convert the money uh, into crypto. And of course, then you know, kind of like washed it. And apparently, people were coming from all the different countries in Asia. With, you know, not maybe not plastic bags, but you get the point, right? Backpacks full of money. And, and of course, one of those companies uh, uh, that was set up like this, and they claimed in a different podcast, um, you know, that they have like 60 uh, good relationships across Asia, even in com- Cambodia where they can collect money and so on. But this was one of the, the closest affiliated companies to FTX or, or to, you know, Alameda. So you can just like wonder how this all kind of work together. And I mean, it's just really fascinating how closely interlinked the, the industry is. And this is what I think reveals it a little bit in the book as
0: well. So then to stay on the China thread, I'm curious. So we just ended on the 2021 bull market. Your book goes on to talk about the 2022 bear market and an FTX. But just separately, I'm curious, do you believe in the four-year cycle? Uh First question there. And then second question would be, um, you've alluded to China in the past has a been pro, against, pro, against, are constantly flip-flopping. Do you think um, with some of the recent developments in Hong Kong that China is going to help spearhead the next bull market? I think the steps that are, uh, that
1: have been taken in, in Hong Kong are quite timid, if, if that is the right word here. I think when you look historically, there were a lot more open, a lot more laissez-faire, and had, of course, a very different impact on the crypto industry. I think the lesson is really... If there's a jurisdiction where you have, um, where you have the talent, where you have the money, the right infrastructure, crypto can really explode. And of course, the Middle East tries to be the hub right now. I think they they struggle a little bit with the infrastructure, you know, to attract really, you know, the, the number of people. It's not just about, you know, offering low tax and capital. You know, people want to have like, you know, the right environment with a lot of universities, a lot of young people. Um, I think London made like a really good good step in that direction. You know, a lot of uh, you know young people, a lot of universities there. Um, but of course, you need some some other pockets there as well. But I think with crypto, it has really flown from one direction to another, depending on you know the kind of like the the political or global economic setting, really, right? And and um, and I don't see this right now. That's why we sort of like in a little bit in a no man's land. But when I, for example, analyze where's really all the flows coming from right now, and people like to quote that there's, you know, so many people in Asia are trading crypto, but they're trading really like small bits and pieces, right? That Versus if you have an institutional player in the US, regulation can be, you know, bad or restrictive. Nevertheless, I think the pools of capital are a lot larger. And that's why I think you're seeing this bull market that appears to be happening right now, uh, you know in happening in the US based on the money flows around you know prudential BlackRock ETF or, or other ETFs. But uh yeah,
0: some. Ryan, I don't mean to jump in again, but like he brought up the ETFs now. I just want to pick your brain on this, Marcus. Um so you mentioned in 2017 the bull market hit one trillion dollars and that's when institutions basically couldn't ignore it anymore. Uh the last bull market got up to above three trillion. Right now we're sitting at just above a trillion. But during the last five years, per se, since then, up through this year, really, we're starting to talk about ETFs, Bitcoin ETFs. Maybe we can get an Ethereum ETF approved. The root of my question here is really if you can break down for the average person why once a Bitcoin ETF is approved, um, it's not going to cause this insane break. And what I mean by this, I've heard a lot of people in the space talk about the second a Bitcoin ETFs approved, Bitcoin dominance is going to shoot up to 90, 95%. There's going to be you know, $3 trillion flooding into just Bitcoin. It's just going to be insane. Altcoins aren't going to matter anymore. Uh, but you recently wrote in your um, DeFi on Target um, newsletter where you're talking about, all right, let's calmly explain what would happen if a Bitcoin ETF was approved. Where would the dollars flow? Can you kind of expand upon that whole situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, let's let's just break it down where the money really could come from. So number one, uh, in the US, you have a lot of uh, institution institutional players using ETFs for asset allocation decisions. So they are the so-called registered investment advisors. Uh, there are fifteen thousand of them, and collectively they manage something around like five trillion us dollars. So they base a lot of their decisions when they talk to their clients about should we have you know fifty percent equity exposure or fifty five, some bonds and so on, right? Not everybody sits there and trades the latest uh, I guess meme coins or meme stocks and so on, right. So it's really kind of those investment allocators that making high level decisions, um, and really, as an as an asset allocation um, right. approach, and again, they manage five trillion. So let's say they would they would put one percent of those five trillion in a Bitcoin ETF for diversification. You get to 40, uh, 50 billion. So you have 50 billion of inflow on that side. You can also look at, for example, precious metals uh, ETFs. Let's say the gold GLD. It's around fifty six billion. Then there's uh, some some other gold ETFs, uh, some silver ETFs. You get around to like 100 to 120 billion, and you say, you know, people these days they don't look at gold maybe as your old concept. Bitcoin is a you know similar approach to some. I'm going to be 100% uh, move out of gold into Bitcoin, but maybe let's say 10% or maybe 20%, right? So that's when you get to kind of 12 billion to 24 billion. So you can argue then, Let's say we take a little bit like the 24 billion number on the low side. On the high side, you're getting, you know, to 50 billion just based on 1% asset allocation out of these, um, out of these, uh, um, registered investment advisors, 5 trillion that they collectively manage, right? And a lot of hedge funds are using ETFs, just, you know, just, you know, get me some exposure into banks, get me some exposure into tech stocks. They don't buy the tech stocks per se, right, that I want to take a view on Microsoft or Google, that is, say, I'm bullish on the sector because I'm bullish on the economy or whatever the narrative is. And I think this is suddenly how Bitcoin can be used as an ETF. You know, right now, we know, of course, some forward-looking, let's say, university endowment funds, pension funds, they have some venture capital portfolio, they have some private equity uh, exposure. Um, They cannot hold tokens themselves. So that's why they went down the route of uh, having, you know, VC exposure, buying, for example, a stake in FTX or in other, in, in other, um, crypto firms, right? But with an ETF, they can do this, right? And the other aspect is people suddenly can also borrow money against this ETF, right? It's, it's seen as like a proper security. And I think that's why it's like a big deal because in the US, you don't necessarily have the retail investors dominating the market, the stock market. You have these institutions and these institutions, they're a big, uh, buyers of ETFs, and I think that's why the ETF is actually a big game changer. And the other analysis I did was, for example, um, when we look over the last, let's say, one or two years, if the market cap of Tether as a benchmark of money inflows through the minting process, if the market capitalization of of uh, Tether changes by, let's say, ten billion, what was the impact on on Bitcoin? So, and of course. If we suddenly have like a market cap increase of like 24 to 50 billion, of course, not in tethers, but let's say another another player, let's say BlackRock as an example, so it might have a similar impact. And that's why I can project it a little bit, um, the price impact that, you know, 24 or 50 billion U.S. dollars of, of net inflow might have on the industry.
0: Marcus, I really appreciate it well thought out answers all around uh for the sake of time today want to remind everybody crypto titans is his book it is linked below you can get it on amazon as well as on kindle which obviously with amazon um please definitely reach out to marcus on linkedin subscribe to his newsletter defi on target his uh well-written uh newsletters are something that gives you bite-sized chunks on everything that's happening in the market nowadays that are easy for you to digest but really appreciate having you on today thank you so much thanks yeah, for having... i just
2: want to second what jordan said i'm really looking forward to reading the book this was a very insightful uh conversation i learned a lot marcus and thank you so much really, really appreciate it yeah, thanks Brian, and john